origins of these balloons was what crashed in Roswell in 1947, which made everyone believe in flying saucers. And I actually think there's a strong chance that maybe in three years, definitely by the end of 2020s, we found some sort of life somewhere else in our solar system. Right now, NASA is building an octocopter. This is an eight-propeller drone to go land on the moon of Saturn to go fly around the rivers and lakes and look for life. You're listening to Widdishin's podcast, where we take the ultimate sci-fi themes found in books and movies and discuss them with the world's leading scientists, engineers, and experts. This week's podcast is brought to you by our sponsors and preferred retailers, Wordery and The Book Depository. And the book whose theme we're reflecting on this week is Down Below Station by C.J. Cherry. Now, Cherry is a legend among sci-fi readers, and her novels, while separate and complete in themselves, are part of a much greater tapestry a future history spanning 5,000 years of human civilizations. Down Below Station is a complicated story of setting up a universe where a giant corporation, or the Earth Company, (laughs) has become wealthy exploring the stars, building space stations around uninhabitable planets. Something that, in my opinion, is not so far from the truth. You can find the link to Down Below Station in the show notes. My name is Amy Rose, and as a host of Wittishins, I bring to you an episode on space residency with Dr. Brad Tucker. Brad is an astrophysicist and cosmologist at the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the Mount Stromlo Observatory and the National Centre for the Public Awareness of Science at the Australian National University. He received his bachelor's degree in physics, philosophy and theology from the University of Notre Dame, as well as a PhD in astrophysics and cosmology from the Mount Stromlo Observatory. Without further ado, let's have a listen to my interview with Dr. Brad Tucker. Welcome, Dr. Brad Tucker. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to be talking about humans possibly living on space. How far away it is, is it possible, what you're doing at the moment in your role, and what does the future look like? So, how did you get into what you're doing now, and what are you doing now? So, take us right back to when you were... So, so you want the One origin those- story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I would like that. Yes, please. <laughs> no. So it's interesting. I'm one, I'm one of those people who didn't like space growing up. You oh. know, there's a lot of people in my field who, you know, that's what they wanted to do and they've known they wanted to do it. I wasn't a, like against it. It's just it wasn't a thing for me. When I was really young, I wanted to be a garbage truck. Like the actual truck, not the driver. And then, you know, you're told you could be anything you want. It's a lie. Yeah. And, then, you know, and so I went to university and I did three degrees. I did physics, philosophy, and theology. So I didn't actually necessarily study astrophysics or really space stuff. And then, but I started to do research into astronomy and I started to realize, hey, I, you know, I like it. And I started to do a few projects in it as an undergraduate and said, hey, you know, this seems fun. And... <laughs> then I've been still doing it. You know, and it's funny. Okay, because it was fun. <laughs> it was fun. And, and I think that's the cool thing now, especially talking to people and kids, is space is fun. And the stuff that we're doing in space is fun. And it's really sci-fi. So my background mm-hmm. is in most of my research is in how stars explode and how the universe is evolving. But since then, I've been getting involved into more space, say, technology 
and space exploration areas. And this started with, I started to work on the Kepler Space Telescope. So this was a telescope to aim to find new planets around other stars. And I was using it to find stars that explode in black holes. But we started to realize that we actually, we came up with a cool way to fix it. And I think this is one of the, the fix... ways that starts people, what? you know, in space. It's Sorry, what, what was broken? No, no, no. So this is a good question. So in space, you have to point in three dimensions, right? So you have side to side, back and yeah. forth, up and down. And so what yeah. the telescopes use is they have these giant gyroscopes or pendulums that actually help them swing in each direction. Now, NASA being NASA, they built four of these gyroscopes, so essentially three in each direction, plus an extra one for backup and fine guidance. Well, two of them broke, which means you can only point mm. in two directions in three-dimensional space, which is kind of a problem. Yeah. And what the project figured out was that we actually pointed the telescope on its side so that part of it was pointing at the sun and literally used light particles, photons from the sun to bounce off the side of it and push it through space. So like literally what? the origins of using light to sail things in space and it works and it worked for <laughs> five years. And, you know, wow. and, this is kind of, and this is the cool start of it. You know, people think, you know, light traveling and solar sails, we fix a broken NASA space telescope using that idea. It works. Mm. And then this started to get me to other things. And then so I started to work on a project to build high altitude balloons. These go about 40 kilometers in the air, but they're stationary and they're stable. And we wanted to attach big telescopes to them to see as we're like in space. And so we, <gasps> we're still in the, we're in the process of building that now. We have a, a next test flight coming up in probably two months. I jump around. Wait, wait, ho hold up. Brad, what? You, you're, is this like a hot air balloon or is this like a helium balloon that just so, yeah, float, so floats around? And also so these are super pressure helium balloons. Okay. And you've got technology attached to the balloons. That's right. So these are these balloons are like two stories tall. And the materials, like, they're very flimsy. They're, it's kind of like a latex. In fact, the origins of these balloons was what crashed in Roswell in 1947, which made everyone believe in flying saucers. That's a fun fact. Oh. So in fact, the so whole Roswell... Yeah, the whole Roswell crash wasn't a flying saucer. It was NASA had these high-altitude balloons, or the U.S. government, and they were actually, they put um, reflective mirrors, listening dishes on them, because essentially they were putting them high in the sky because sound waves travel really well at that height. So they were trying to listen for Russian nuclear bomb testing. Or, here's another theory, <laughs> or <laughs> a UFO did crash and they found out, oh, look at this awesome material, let's use it, and created ourselves. Well and then they created the balloons. Well, except there's a newspaper article from a few days ago, a few days after the Roswell crash with Princeton announcing that they just launched 40 of them to look for cosmic rays in space. Okay. I know. A after the crash? I well, don't know. It was, an, it was something. So this is the interesting thing. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's this sort of thing. The look, the search for aliens has moved from a really taboo thing, say, 50 years ago to a big part of what a lot of people do. And firstly, when we say aliens, we don't just mean green, weird versions of us. You know, we just mean life. And I actually think there's a strong chance that maybe in three years, definitely by the end of 2020s, we found some sort of life somewhere else in our solar system. Well, someone's recently found that there's water on an exoplanet or something. There's water vapor on an exoplanet. There's water on Mars. Actually, two of the moons of Jupiter yeah. and Saturn have more water than here on Earth. 
So it's actually quite an common thing. And there are missions mm. being planned. You know, right now, NASA is building an octocopter. This is an eight propeller drone to go land on the moon of Saturn, to go fly around the rivers and lakes to look for life. You know, this is not sci-fi anymore. These are real missions people are building to go and design and do. And that's the cool thing. And It you know, is so cool. And also with the water shortage, if they've got heaps of it, well, let's well, just you know, cart what, some back and forth. Well, one of the good things we're doing is finding good dual-use technology. So a good example is, you know, we're looking at building an infrared telescope on the space station to look for water around other planets. But we realize, hey, if we just point it towards the ground, can we find water here on Earth? And the answer is yes. We can actually find water underneath the surface using this technology to actually help for droughts and that sort of thing. And that's the great thing. Oh, about my God. That's logical. <laughs> it is. And that's the great thing about space. We've gotten really good at, like, because we think of these really abstract problems, then we just sometimes say, oh, if we could do that here, can't we do that on Earth? And usually the answer is yes. Very cool. Yeah. And one of the things that I've slipped into recently is the idea of mining asteroids in space. And, and this is because, you know... While they're, this is while they're moving like Armageddon. Kind of, yeah. Style. Um, and in Ooh. fact, it's actually already happened. Space mining when? has already occurred. How they, well, a little bit exactly. of background? I exactly. don't know about Exactly. Exactly. This is a cool <laughs> thing. So there's a mission called Hayabusa 2, and this is a mission led by the Japanese Space Agency with Australia uh, and the French and the Germans. And so about a year ago now, this probe landed at the asteroid Rigyu. And in February, and I think May and July, it did three maneuvers where this probe went down the surface and it had this, what they call touch and go maneuvers. It had this like burrowing vacuum cleaner that went down to the surface, sucked up rock and stuff, and then popped out of the surface. And then in between the second and third maneuvers, we had a capsule that contained 10 kilograms of C4 and we blew a hole in the asteroid. What? That's incredible. Exactly. And about two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now, the entire capsule was sealed and is actually going to make a return journey back and land in South Australia. So oh, I'm so it. glad it's going to land in Australia. It is. You know, <laughs> so cool. So this stuff can already happen. And so it's starting people to think that, you know, asteroids are essentially frozen chunks of metal. How can we use mm. this? in future exploration, both in space and on Earth. You know, one of the big goals of everywhere is, you know, if we can use ice, that's good for us for drinking and stuff like that. But ice is mostly the components of rocket fuel. We can turn ice into rocket fuel, essentially. And if you have metals, you can make things in space, but also in the future, bring them back down. You know, we're talking about your Mm. average asteroid having hundreds years of worth of nickel and lithium. Like it would literally take a hundred years worth of global mining to get the same amount of nickel from one asteroid. And people are already proving it can work. And these asteroids, that's a bit creepy because they need to be sort of close enough to Earth to mine, but farther enough away to not hit us. (laughs) That's right. And one of the problems with asteroids is asteroids are kind of like the cockroaches of the universe. We ignore them and they get in the way and we can't really get rid of them. And so, you know, we know there's a lot of them and they're out there. And then the questions are, what do we do with them? And there's a, there's a, we only know of about a few percent of all asteroids. Now, the really big ones, the ones that will destroy the Earth, we have a pretty good of understanding of where those are, and there is nothing that we know of really headed to the Earth anytime soon. So mining really does need to happen as soon as possible. I mean, it, we, it there does. could be things on... on... And, and one of the reasons is it's, it's costly to put things in space, right? It's about $20,000 yeah. a kilogram to put something in low Earth orbit. So if you do, you know, do an example, right? 
So you need eight liters of water a day. That's eight kilograms. That's $160,000 in water per day per person. Let's say you're up in the space oh. for 100 days. That's $16 million in water per day per person. But if you can mine it in space and use it in space, it's cheap. This is why everyone cares about the moon. Not because the moon is necessarily interesting, but there's a lot of ice on the moon. And because there's very little gravity, very little air, you can actually build faster rockets by refueling at the moon. The moon will be turning into a fuel stop for space travel. And so this brings me to people actually living in space because there's going to be, I can imagine just like a hotel, it's just floating up there. And we won't have to spend, like you say, millions and millions of dollars on water because there'll just be an automated ship going to and from an asteroid bringing water to service the ship sort of thing. Do you think that sounds legit? Maybe. I mean, I I think if we break it down, like, you know, firstly, let's just look at the moon, right? Because that is going to be the idea of the moon in the sense that when we look at the moon, right now there's what's called the gateway. And this is a space station being designed to be built around the moon with a launch date maybe in about three years' time. Because it's even easier to go in orbit around the moon and hang out at the moon. And so this is great. Because if you dock at the moon in the space station and go back down to the surface to refuel, you can take off. So the gateway is designed to house four astronauts at a time for up to three months. This is literally being designed, and Australia signed on to design this mm. and work on this. So I heard so- about that. That's huge. And this is the sort of thing is, you know, these things are not far out. These are the solutions. You know, everyone is pushing back to the moon. And look, the way I like to express is this. December 31st, 2018. In the entire of humanity, only two countries have landed or attempted to land it on the moon, the U.S. and Russia or the USSR. In nine months alone, three countries have tried. Like, that is how fast and how much space is changing. If everyone in the world and all these different countries have the technology, can they not just work together? And, I mean, I know it's a bit of a race. They have all this technology. That's actually the good thing. Even the space station, the U.S. and the Russia have agreed to work on it. You know, and, you know, like... The well, well really? U.S. Yeah. and Russia are working on something? Yes, and they have for a while. In fact, <laughs> they agreed in September in 2017 at, a like, the annual space meeting, which is actually held in Adelaide, the same meeting Australia announced the space agency, that they were going to cooperate to design it together. They would each build their own modules, but it would work together, just as they did in the International Space Station. So there's a lot of international cooperation. You know, China landed on the far side of the moon back in January 2nd with a really cool mission. And the U.S. used their imaging to aid the landing. So these things are actually happening at a level that is quite exciting. You know, space is becoming a very international collaborative thing. Some of the issues are in the legal frameworks with the private industry and really the mining, right? Because right now the law is written that anything used in space kind of is contained for the use in space and for all humankind. And in 2015, the U.S. passed a law that circumvented that for their countries or their private companies in their country. You might have that sneaky suspicion that we've cut a fair bit out of this episode and your intuition is on point, but that's because we can't fit everything in. And you also might have a sneaky suspicion that we've done other interviews that are a little bit crazier. So if you want access to all the uncut episodes and the interviews that we decided to make private, head to www.wittishinspodcast.com forward slash members only and you might just find your tribe. Okay, I'll let you get back to the episode now. 
So space law is a big deal. Is it a bit like the ocean laws? You know, once you get to a certain point, there are no laws or? Well, kind of. So space starts at 100 kilometers. And the reason it starts at 100 kilometers is that's just a nice round number. Okay. Because there's no, it's a hard physical reason. So like there is a height at which you can do an orbit around the earth, which is called the Carbon line. But that varies. So okay. they just kind of rounded 100 kilometers to say, this is where space starts. But then the laws around it, they become quite complicated. So it's all signed through international treaties that don't necessarily represent private countries. It might just be that people hang out in space before they even have the legislation, then it gets crazy up there. Oh, definitely. In fact, you know, we're the first tourists are in, well, we've actually already had the space tourists. You know, people forget about this. The Russians have taken mm. a few tourists up to the space station already. Now, it's a bit different because they're under Russia guidance, but, you know, private companies launching tourism, you know, I would be massively surprised if it doesn't happen with Virgin Galactic by the end of this year. I expected it actually in July. But isn't it, doesn't it take a lot of training to be able to go up into space? Don't you have to prepare your body and... Space medicine is a really big deal. So let me ask you this. What animal's been the most in space? Hmm. I don't know. Cockroach? <laughs> Good guess. Uh, Ants? <laughs> jellyfish. Yeah, really? Obviously you're why? You're obviously wondering why. Oh, yeah, because so, they're... Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, so jellyfish, when they reproduce, they reproduce quickly. They reproduce a lot. And when they form, crystals form in their bodies. And this acts as buoyancy. It tells them we're up and down it. So NASA's bred 60,000 jellyfish in space. And they bred these generations of jellyfish and then brought them back down to Earth. And they couldn't swim properly. They had formed differently in space. And so space uh-huh. medicine is a big deal. All of our knowledge from space travel mostly comes from 30 to 50-year-old white American Air Force pilots. Like, you know, I'm not being mean, but that is a bulk of our understanding. And future space travelers will be of all ages and genders and health backgrounds. And there's a lot of problems that humans have in space that maybe aren't as well understood. Your eye changes in space. Well, I also imagine if people are going to go on their honeymoon, they're going to hang out in space maybe for a couple of months, let's say, and they make a baby in there. And if it's anything like the jellyfish, the babies will form differently. Is is that Yes, this right. is a real worry that if people go to Mars and there's someone born on Mars, they're never coming back because they will formed in different gravity, weak gravity, weaker pressure, and they will not be able to withstand Earth. Do you actually know what astronauts exercise? You know how astronauts exercise in space? Do you know why? It's well, I know well, they, why they should. It's not muscles. It's bone density. They have weaker bones. Uh. Than, like It helps with muscles, but they lose bone density. That calcium goes into your bloodstream. You get kidney stones in space. Wow. Everything is worse in space. And so our knowledge of the human body is a really big deal. And yet these the plans for travelers are happening. And a lot of the private companies aren't necessarily focusing on a lot of these health issues as they should. You know, we will probably have problems with humans in space, but it's going to happen. And people need to prepare for it. And we need protocols of how to happen. You know, things are moving so fast. These other areas can't keep up. Well, that's exactly right. And that really does worry me a little bit because I'm a bit pro living in space. <laughs> but it would mean that if for any reason that you that's a human was created in space, maybe perhaps they can't come back to Earth. It, it, maybe if it's not on Mars, maybe if it's just wherever they are, they're not even yeah, on the yeah. planet. 
if they're just in the spaceship. Well, one of the things people are working on is trying to develop protocols around this. So in fact, my wife does space medicine. So she's an emergency doctor and does research in space medicine. And they're working on developing protocols around future space travelers and issues and litigation and all that sort of stuff to make it safe and effective at the same time um, for people to go into space. Maybe there just needs to be a time limit. You know, maybe there are, mm. you know, there are time limits. There's, you know, things like artificial gravity can solve some of these. Not all of them, but they can. You know, a good example was two weeks ago, astronauts made submit in space because they wanted to see does submit form the same way as it does here on Earth? And the answer is no. The lack of gravity forms differently and it doesn't cause the cement to set as well. So the cement was weaker and didn't form as well. And again, this causes a problem. So do you think there's going to be kings and queens or presidents and prime ministers of these ships? It's hard to say what form it takes, right? You know, and I think for the beginning and the next foreseeable future, you know, when it's like private companies running it up, they will have to come back and down and so there will probably be captains as a way, just kind of like cruise ships. I think that's probably the way to think about it for now. You know, not mm. semi-permanent presences, but kind of temporary presences. It might change in the future. I think the biggest issues with Mars, you know, when people start going long-term to Mars, what is the law framework? Who does what? Who controls what? What are the laws? What are the issues? You know, what laws do you have to represent? You know, space crime is a kind of a big deal. What laws do you follow? Uh, and in fact, the first space crime might have been committed a few weeks ago. What happened? So one of the astronauts in the space station um, was reported. And again, we're not, we don't know whether it was it's true or not, but we'll just talk about it as an example, that she logged into her estranged partner's bank account. Now, uh, so it's kind of cyber crime in space, which is even weirder. Now, the way the laws are currently written, if you are an American launched from the U.S. on a U.S. rocket to the U.S., thing in space, you follow U.S. law, but treaties are written. But she's an American astronaut okay. launched from Kazakhstan via Russia under contract from U.S. to an international space station, which has its own agreement. Which law does she follow? No one knows. What None. <laughs> well, in fact, if, in some reason, yeah. she's kind of like she would have to go to the international court, the Hague, which is probably a bit overkill. And so these are these funny- what the hell was she doing logging into someone's bank account from up there? Everyone would know. <laughs> well, I mean, so they have like a, a, a child together, and I think she was just saying she was just doing banking or something like that. And again, so, it, you know, yeah. it's kind of what actually she was doing. That's kind of not the issue. You know, if in some ways, like, you could be launched into space and kill someone and not guilty. There's no crime committed there. Mm. Mm, so there needs to be some sort of jurisdiction up there, the, the space jurisdiction or something, and the UN will need to write all that legislation, exactly. I'm assuming. This is exactly what they're trying to do. And currently, you know, these are all based on treaties written in the 60s, which don't really represent the technology. This is the way space is moving. It's really exciting. But I think one of the issues is all this other stuff isn't being focused on politics and economics and law and security. You know, the technology is moving so fast in a really cool way that all this other stuff needs to come with it. Yeah, it reminds me of the problem with AI and ethics and, yeah, you know, it's, it'll be here before. That's right. There's definitely parallels that people that you can see and you can see where the technology is moving. I mean, and, and there's even there's even crazier stuff that, you know, or is there, you know, have you ever heard of the X-37B? No. What's that? So the X-37B is the U.S. Air Force robotic space drone. 
So it's half the size of the space shuttle, and it can stay in the air for years at a time doing who knows what. Mm. Again, not sci-fi. Okay. It's been in orbit for a while. There's, <laughs> you know, there's, you know, we're working on something here that actually is using lasers to deorbit space junk. You know, so kind of. Oh, like I've seen those. I was going to, yeah, I was going to invest in that company. Something yeah. X, I can't remember. So EOS. Yeah. Electro optic systems. Let's go ahead in time. Is it a technology that you can imagine that perhaps we wouldn't think of right now or something that you're really excited to see come in the next 10 years that is just unbelievable to us now? So one that is slowly being worked on and kind of I think going to be one of the next new big inventions is something called quantum laser optical communications. And besides being like very buzzwordy, so if you think about it, the way we communicate right now in space is we have a, a radio dish that sends a radio beam to the satellite or the astronauts, wherever. Now, that is inefficient, and it sends the beam over an area, so like it spreads over area. One of the problems is besides not getting good bandwidth or big bandwidth is that, well, let's say I'm communicating to you and I send my signal out to you. Well, if yeah. there's someone right next to you, they're going to hear our conversation. Now, you mm. might say, okay, the way we get around this is we just put it in an orbit where we know there's no other satellites, except yeah. there's now 12 countries that possess the ability to actually move satellites and change orbits and park right next to other satellites. Dodgy. And this happens all the time. In fact, Optus in Australia happens to their satellites quite often. That is really dodgy, yeah. Brad. And this is all the space. So you might say, oh, I'm going to encrypt it. But if you send the encryption key there then they have the encryption keys. You're well. sending it to the... Exactly. <laughs> and this happens, like this is currently going on. And so <laughs> one of the things that we're working on is instead of using a radio beam, you use a laser beam. You actually compress your information mm. into a laser beam and send it. And so in order to be there, you have to be at the exact point on the laser beam. It's kind of like thinking like Bond, right? If someone crosses that laser beam, you cut it off. But Yeah, and it will be direct to the source. Exactly. So you won't have and these the beauty of eavesdroppers think we can get terabyte per second download rate. So literally you can download an entire hard drive from space in one second. <gasps> no, what? You can't even do that here. Exactly. <laughs> so if you, you do that from, if you can do it from space, you can help put it on the ground as well. And then the, X, the last wow. part is if we quantum encrypt it. So we literally use quantum physics to change the state of the light that will make it unbreakable because you're literally physically creating a key based on the laws of physics that only you know and only you have determined. It essentially is, at this point, the most impenetrable way of encrypting things. And this is on it. We're just building the first station to test it right now. And so this is going to be something kind of like Wi-Fi that hits people in 10 years. And all of a sudden, we have fast communication all around the world and safely to space. And that changes the game. Is that better than this 5G stuff? I mean, this would be, I mean 5G is great. Fast. This would be way better than 5G. Oh, my actual God, that's incredible. And this isn't even that far out there, right? This is like something people are working no. on. Now. Those people who say, all oh, this stuff is impossible. If you can think it, either it's been done or someone's going to work on it, or it's never going to happen. Because one of the things people don't realize is space is all about money. Like, let's take the space elevator. A good example is, right, the space elevator has probably missed its economic chance. Because now we have reusable mm. rockets that are cheaper. So if something's more expensive, you're never going to do it. So it's one of these things that it's not just the technology, but the cost involved. And if you miss the window, you miss the window. So can we just talk about this laser again? I'm yeah, yeah. really excited about it. So 
like, can you send one of these lasers through a human? Would it hurt a human if you sent a laser through them? Do you reckon? Uh, no. So it, 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 it's not that sort of thing. You know, you're not talking about power that's actually going to really burn them. The laser we have for removing space debris is a bit powerful, but it wouldn't kill someone. It's not quite a Death Star, unfortunately. So how does it explode? Wait, so what does it do to the satellites then? So what we actually do for the space debris is you push on it. So it's like water going down the drain. And you push on it, so it actually changes it and pushes it straight up. Then gravity pulls it straight back down and you burn it up in the Earth's atmosphere. So you kind of steer it with the laser. Oh. You don't want to create smaller bits because that's still dangerous. A good example Mm -hmm. is the space shuttle had bulletproof glass. And a flake of paint created a hole five centimeters deep in the bulletproof glass of the space shuttle. You do not need to be very big to do a lot of damage. So you want it to actually burn off. And the laser is only powerful enough to move very small things. It's not going to do a whole satellite or that sort of thing. And that's still four kilowatts to do that. And this quantum laser optical communications, let's just say that it absolutely, it sounds like a a terabyte a second. That'll take over 5G as soon as it's viable to mass produce and set up this infrastructure. That's right. Would that that hurt a human? No, no, it won't hurt a human just, again, the way we're doing it because, you know, you're talking about point-to-point the same way radio waves change. So it's actually kind of like the same Mm -hmm. energy as a radio wave, just more constrained into an optical. Well, okay, mind blown. This has been an awesome interview, Dr. Brad Tucker. Thank you so much for talking to me. It's been wonderful. No worries, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the episode with Dr. Brad Tucker today. I hope you learn a little bit about space and the technology that is currently being developed for space travel and space occupancy and residency. Please like and subscribe on whatever podcasting application you're using. And until next time, keep learning and keep reading.